Hi, beautiful Bridgeway family. It is time to get into God's Word, and I'm super excited about it. We are in part 17 of our Connecting to Church series, and I entitled today's message, Filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. If you are taking notes, you might want to grab those. If you need to open up the app to be able to follow along and do the fill in the blank a little bit later, you can do that as well. But I have a lot to cover, so let's dive into it right off the bat. Now, I'm going to give you a fill in the blank that I don't want you to answer out loud because it's probably going to embarrass you. Don't answer it out loud just in your head, but I want you to finish this statement in your mind. Ready? If you said this statement, man, you are so full of blank, what would your answer be? You are so full of what? What would you say? Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, where's pastor going with this? Well, hold on. One of the answers that you could do is you are so full of yourself. Have you ever said that, thought that about someone? Even they thought it about you? Here's the point that I'm going to make. Notice that we instinctively know that a human being can be full of something, that there is some type of territory here that can be filled up. And a lot of times it is filled up with selfishness or it is filled up with garbage. Now, the Bible actually uses this same concept when it talks about human beings being vessels. In other words, we are containers with territory in our spirit. We house things inside of us. And apparently, there's a lot of room in there because the Bible talks about it a lot. Think about it. In Jeremiah 18, it says that God came in and he had a potter's wheel going. What do you make on a potter's wheel? You make pots. What are pots? They're vessels. They're containers. And he was talking about human beings. And then another analogy. Listen to this one. I'm going to read it out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Now in a great house, meaning a wealthy house, there are not only containers or vessels of gold and silver, but also those of wood and clay. Some are for fancy or honorable use. Some for plain or dishonorable use. Therefore, verse 21 is the key. If anyone, now speaking of people, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a container for honorable use for God, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. The Bible keeps going. I think we're all very familiar with 2 Corinthians reference that we are all but jars of clay. Notice the vessel reference again. The very concept of demon possession that is so commonly referred to in the New Testament means that there is territory that can be inhabited, that we are a location But perhaps the most beautiful example, and the one that I would love to focus on for us today, is John 14, 16. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be what? In you. 
You see, we can all be filled with so many things. We can be filled with good stuff or bad stuff. Think about it. We could be filled with gifts or talents or abilities. Somebody says, man, they are filled with so much skill and ability, right? We could be filled with awe. Something amazing happens, and you say, and they were filled with awe. We could be filled with wisdom, filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with comfort, so many good things. But we could also be filled with bad things, right? That's not too hard to believe. You've heard of someone being filled with fear or filled with anger or filled with bitterness and jealousy and false hope and sorrow and evil, right? So we are containers, we are vessels, and we can be filled with all sorts of things. As a matter of fact, let me give you the fill in the blank that's on that app, and it's this. We are all full of something. We are all full of something. If you remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 4, it was a miracle that God gave to a very poor widow. She didn't have any money, and through the prophet, he said, I want you to go out and get every container or vessel that you can. Borrow it from your neighbors and from your friends and your family. And then she had a little bit of oil, and as she began to pour, it began to fill up each container, and she would set it aside, and then fill up another one and set it aside. Then finally, she didn't have any more containers, and the oil stopped. What's the point? Only the empty portion of a container can be filled. Remember that. Only the empty portion of a container can be filled. If our lives are so full of ourselves, how is there any room for God? Where is there any place for him to move in our lives if we're full of distraction? How can he operate in us when we are so full of sin? You see, part of the goal in the Christian life is to be able to empty out ourselves and the world so that the Lord can fill us with him. That we might decrease and he might increase. That's what we're looking for. Well, That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me recap a little bit in case you're brand new to the series. We're going through the book of Ephesians, and the pastor Paul the Apostle was speaking to the Ephesian church, and he's like, you know that you're Christians. You know you have this brand new identity. we got to live into that. That means we got to get rid of some of the old habits and bring in some new habits. Remember, the Christianity speaks about replacing that which is unhealthy with that which is healthy. So, last week we heard from Bishop Parnell Lovelace. Now tell me this, was it not awesome to have Bishop Parnell Lovelace in the house? Every time I get to hear from that brother, it just fills up my soul, right? So I'm so thankful. So here's what he taught us last week. He read through the book of Ephesians with us and he said, here's what Paul teaches. We must not walk in darkness. We must not walk in sin. We must not walk in ignorance, but we must walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. He said this, we must walk with wisdom. We must walk according to the Lord's will for us. Remember, it is about letting go of the world and more about God. This week continues that same instruction to teach us how to live as children of God. So let's get into this. We're going to be in Ephesians 5. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Now, we're only going to be studying one verse today. That's just verse 18. But I want to give you the context. I'm going to read all the way through 21 just so we can kind of get a feel for where he's going with this. But while I read it, I want you to remember the replacement principle. The goal of the Lord is not for us to simply hand things off and become more empty. It's to replace that which is unhealthy with that which is good, right? So think about that replacement concept as I read through this passage for context. Here we go, Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the word of the Lord. So let's tear it apart and see what we can find. Here we go. Let's back up in verse 18. This is where we're going to focus. Just two portions. Here we go. First portion. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. All right, let's get practical got to talk about alcohol. As long as I've been alive, I've been in the church, and as long as I've been in the church, there are a million opinions about what we should do with alcohol. Some people believe that there's absolutely nothing wrong with using it for any and every purpose and taking as much of it as they want. And then on the other side, you have those that said it is sinful to even be around it, and we got to clear it out of our houses, and I've heard it all. Remember, whenever there becomes a big issue like this with a million opinions, where do we need to go? We always go back to God's word. That is our anchor. Opinions from wise people are helpful, but there's a million opinions in the world. What we want is truth, amen? So we're gonna go back to God's word. Now here's how we're gonna do that. The Bible talks a lot about wine specifically. It doesn't talk a lot about hard alcohol, or strong drink very much, but it does talk about wine a lot. As a matter of fact, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading out of, it is used 236 times in 215 verses. So what did I do for this sermon? I looked them all up, and here's what I found. The overwhelming majority of uses of wine in Scripture are positive. So wherever we're going to come out with on the other side, we need to at least have a positive view of wine and alcohol. Why? Because that's where the Bible is at. Now, there is some balance in that, and that's why we're talking about it today. Usually, references to wine in Scripture in a positive way fall into four main categories. If you take notes, you might want to write these down. Here we go. Category number one. Wine is referred to in Scripture as the best beverage, and it's usually linked to the wealthy. Why? And when I mean best beverage, let me be very clear. I mean that in that day, it was safe to drink, and it had taste to it. 
It was safe to drink and had taste to it. That made it the better beverage than water, which sometimes wasn't always healthy to drink and didn't carry a taste. So if something was fancy, you would bring out the better beverage, which was wine. And as a matter of fact, lots of stories in the Bible. Uh, When Jacob went in to honor his father Isaac, even though he was deceiving him, don't get me wrong, when he came in, he came in with a meal and with wine. Why? Because he was supposed to bring the best of the food and the best of the liquid. He brought that in. King David, the Bible says, not only had vineyards, but he had wine cellars where he could amass large amounts of wine to be used in celebrations. The priest king, King Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who is a Christ-type figure, actually brought out food and wine to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And of course, we know that the Lord's Supper was taken with wine. Whenever we do communion here, we do juice as a representation of what they were utilizing, which was actually wine in the meal from a common cup. And if we really want to get nerdy, what did Nehemiah do in the Old Testament? What was his job? He was the cupbearer to the king. His whole job was to bring wine to the king. So it's used a lot as considered the wealthier or the nicer best beverage at the time. All right? Let's pick up number two. The second main reason that the Bible talks about it is, and something you may not know, is that it's used as an offering to God. In the sacrificial system, we always think about animals being sacrificed, right? As a matter of fact, we think about it as the animal sacrificial system, but there was also a grain offering, but there was a wine offering that people were to bring wine, a portion of their wine, to the Lord. That's another very common reference. And then number three, wine production in the land is seen as a blessing from God on your territory, especially in Israel. So wine was used as an example that God's hand of blessing was on something. Let me give you an example on that one. Deuteronomy 7.13. Speaking of God, it says, if you follow his commandments, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground. Bless your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. In the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. So a lot of times the Bible talks about a land flowing with wine because that was seen as an abundant blessing of God. All right, let's hit the last one, number four. This is the one that's gonna get a little bit tricky for you because one of the most common references positively in scripture about wine is that it was used for celebration. Used for celebration. It was designed, the Bible says, to cheer men and God. Now, of course, with God, that's an analogy, a metaphor, but it was to cheer the heart of man, okay? supposed to make you feel happy. And I know that that's where it starts getting a little bit tricky for us, right? Let me read this. Psalm 104, 14. 104, 14. Speaking of God, 
It says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants to grow for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and bring forth wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Did you see that? It was brought and made to what? Gladden the heart of man. It's supposed to bring joy. It's supposed to create a happy feeling. Now, even God uses it when he talks about himself. He uses these descriptions. Isaiah 25, 6. He said, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. God says, I'm throwing a feast, and it's going to have wine and food and wine, and goes back to wine again. And he wasn't talking about the little light version. He was talking about well-aged, very fancy wine. Okay, one more example. We know that Jesus' first sign miracle, right? Which means that he was demonstrating that he was the Messiah, was actually turning water to wine in Cana in Galilee. Now, here's kind of how that story went down. If you're new to this, Jesus was at a a family gathering with his mom and his siblings, and they were at a wedding of either a relative or it was a neighbor, some type of friend. In this wedding environment, the way that it would work in the ancient Middle East and even today is that you would set up a beautiful banquet for all of your guests. And your provision for them was the the goal that they would have a great time in the honor of the couple that was getting married. Now, one of the key things was you provided wine to gladden the heart of the people And so it would be a joyful celebration. Well, they ran out. And that was a big problem because it meant either they didn't have the money to provide for everyone long enough or they didn't have the care and concern to provide for everyone. Anyway, it was a big deal. So Jesus' mom said, hey, we have a problem here. They ran out of wine. You need to do something about it. Well, he ends up getting involved and he goes over to a bunch of large water jugs and he anoints them right which we don't know how he did that but he transforms them into wine says take that to the person in charge of wine for the party they scoop some out he has no idea where it's coming from and he says this is high quality wine why in the world would you bring this out so late in the party you bring out the best stuff at the beginning and then you when everybody's already drank plenty then you bring out the garbage stuff we're at the end of the party here and you're bringing out high quality wine remember it was for the celebration not just water all right now this is where people go okay But pastor, you have to admit, there has been so much damage that has been done by alcohol throughout all of history, and I agree with you. And that's where we balance everything with what else God has to say about alcohol. There are some very clear warnings and very clear directives about dangers with too much alcohol use. So let's 
Let's talk about that and balance our view. Let's take a look. As a matter of fact, there I could only find four stories of specific characters that got overly drunk in the Bible. I could only find four. Every single time, it went horribly bad. Let me tell you who they are. The first one in the Bible to actually fall prey to drunkenness was Noah, right? It says, and he cultivated the lands and the vineyards and got himself drunk. At the end of that story, it left him naked, embarrassed, and his son cursed. That was not awesome. That was in Genesis chapter nine. Second story, Lot. Abraham's nephew, Lot, got drunk by his daughters and they ended up having children through him that were two tribes that ended up being a big problem for Israel. That's not good. Third story, a man named Nabal, whose wife, Abigail, later marries King David, she saves him from an assassination attempt while he's hammered drunk. Not good on him. And then the last one, King Ahasuerus, the same king that was later tied to Queen Esther in the story of Esther, he got super drunk and tried to parade his, his former queen, Queen Vashti, and her beauty, tried to parade her in front of all of his drunk friends. She wasn't having it, and there became a huge problem. So once again, four stories, four people got drunk, four terrible situations. That's not an accident. But I do want to talk about why drunkenness is viewed as bad. Moderation, cheer to the heart, wine, good, too much, bad. Why? Huh. It might not be what you think it is. Now, in modern day, we have a bunch of different dangers that we face, which is like things like drunk driving. We have the ability to use large machinery, drive it at high speeds when we are impaired, and that is consistently dangerous. Now, back in the ancient world, I don't think there was a whole lot of donkey riding while drunk. I don't think that there was that kind of problem when they were running into each other. So the Bible doesn't focus on that aspect of the danger. Most of its warnings center on bad decision-making. Bad decision making. Now, this is interesting because for most of us, we never think about that being the problem with too much alcohol. We think about the ways that it goes into other terrible devastation of families. Well, but how did it get there? Here's what the Bible says the love of wine, meaning a desire for too much, right? We're talking about drunkenness now when you've lost control of your faculties. The love of wine, the Bible says, can lead to laziness, irresponsibility, foolish behavior, and violence. I think many of us have seen those effects. It says that too much wine makes you ignore the Lord and make bad decisions. Now, this is why it's worse for a Christian to be involved in drunkenness than even a non-Christian. Why? Because we are not our own. 
Everything that we were designed for, when we were saved and rescued by Jesus Christ, he took over our lives, gave us the Holy Spirit, and we are now referred to as the body of Christ. That means every action we do here in this planet is to carry on what Jesus would do. When he wants to get something done in a room, he taps on the shoulder of a Christian. When he wants to give a hug or an encouragement or a correction or an exhortation, he's going to use a Christian to do it. The main problem with drunkenness is that it's selfish. It is saying, I'm now going to lose control of my faculties. I want everyone else to tailor their their stuff to me. I'm now going to be dependent on them. It's no longer about anyone else in my life. It's about me. And I'm off limits from God. That's the real problem. Do you understand why that is a huge deal? Because it's the antithesis of what Christianity teaches. Let me read you a verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The point is, Jesus paid a lot to make you tied to him. So therefore, whatever actions we carry out are linked to him. And when we say, God, it's all about me now, he's not going to authorize that. All right, so let's land the plane on this piece. We've talked about it a lot. Let me tell you the bottom line, in my opinion, on the issue of wine and alcohol. The problem is not the thing. It's the heart controlling the thing. Wine is a neutral. In the Bible, it's predominantly positive. It was meant to be a blessing. But because of our selfishness and our wickedness, we take the blessings of God and turn them into curses. The very thing he gave us to encourage us, we use to harm ourselves and harm other people. It's not the thing. It's the hearts that are handling the thing. My heart about this whole issue is not that I'm gonna tell you what to do with it because I think we're all in different places in our lives. There are some of us that have no business having alcohol around us. There's some of us that have freedom and license and ease with that because we understand the term moderation. I am not here to tell you how to handle it. Here's what I want for Bridgeway. My heart is that we see the issue clearly that we make wise personal decisions regarding it, that we are not afraid of it, that we give God glory for it and move forward as the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's dive into the rest of the passage. We only hit one half of that verse. What's the other half say? Remember, if we're gonna take something out, what do we replace it with? It says, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with drunkenness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This concept of God filling things is one of my favorite concepts in the Bible, and let me tell you why. There's a story in the Old Testament where Moses, one of God's favorite people, was called by him to lead the nation of Israel, and so God said, you know what? We need to have quality time together. I want you to set up a little makeshift tent 
We'll call it the tent of meeting. Later on, we'll call it the tabernacle. But it's a, it's a little prayer area where I'm just going to hang out with you and I'll give you downloads and directives on how to lead my people. And here's what's so beautiful about it. When they would meet, God would fill the location with his presence. Listen to this. I love this. Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled so thickly upon it and the glory of Yahweh filled it. How beautiful is that? This is what I dream of, that we would have a church location, that we would have lives, that we would have missional communities, that we would have small groups, that we would have classes where the glory of God is so thick in the atmosphere, we are so caught up in it, we almost can't even do what we're doing because it's so much about God and not about us. You see, the, we ended up in history making a more permanent location than the tabernacle, and it was called the what? The temple. That's right. So when Solomon ended up getting a chance to build the permanent temple, he then had a dedication service. You know what happened at that dedication service? Fire came down from the sky, burned up the offering they had given to God, and once again, the cloud of his presence descended down and was so thick, nobody could even go inside. But you know, all this stuff on earth is a shadow, an example of what's happening in heaven. In books like Ezekiel, we read about the heavenly throne room and we read stories where it says, and his cloud of his presence was thick in the room. And then we read like in Isaiah, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory and God is just filling and filling and filling his holy places. But you know what God's favorite place is? You know what his favorite temple is? It's you and I. It's what he always wanted. He doesn't want to dwell in an empty location. He wants to be with his people and allow them to be with him. Do you understand that the temples of today are you and I? As a matter of fact, just to give the example of that, Think about the story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to indwell his people. Each one of them got a tongue of fire over their heads. You know why that's so important? Because that same type of Shekinah glory, that same fire and glow was what was in the tabernacle and in the temple. And God was saying, yes, the same thing you long to be near me in the temple I have now made in you. You're a walking house of God. I highlight it again, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, do you know what it means? Because in the Bible, it talks about a lot of people that were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, it seems to mean that God comes down to people and he fills our lives and permeates throughout all of us. 
it seems to be an intensification of his presence because we know that God already dwells in us. We know that God already fills the world. So how much more could we have? The concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit means that there's an intensification. There is a type of more where he is more in control of our lives. He is more moving in power. And from what I can gather in Scripture, filling of the Holy Spirit is different than baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism seems to be more of a one-time event, whereas filling can be multiple times. Why would we need to get filled multiple times? Because we leak. Our spirits, our vessels, are leaky Vessels. It's like having a pot of water and there's a hole in the bottom. It keeps leaking out, so you got to keep filling it in. So there can be multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I so desperately want. What would it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, biblically, we learn that in the most rare case, you have John the Baptist who is filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That would be crazy, right? That would be awesome. But normally, when the Holy Spirit fills people up, there's an anointing that comes with it. Let me give you an example. John the Baptist's mom was pregnant with him, and she runs into Mary, who has Jesus in her womb. It says, and then Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to prophesy. She speaks on God's behalf. Well, then we find out the Holy Spirit fills Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and he prophesies. There's this anointing from heaven that comes in and he begins to speak on God's behalf. Think about the Pentecost story I just told you. 120 people in a room, it says the Holy Spirit filled them all and they begin to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit directed. When Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, it says he began to speak boldly for Jesus to the religious leaders. And I love this verse, Acts 4.31. This is an early church praying. Check this out. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Imagine how cool that would be. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you realize that it was the filling of the Holy Spirit in Paul the Apostle's life when he was first transformed that let the scales fall from his eyes and he regained his sight? You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what I long for. I long to be the one that the Holy Spirit has free range in my heart, mind, soul, and body. I dream of a time when our church is full of the Holy Spirit because every one of us that are coming into church are filled afresh. I would love to see the freshness of anointing a prophetic ministry and the anointing of the healing to allow people to be restored again. I would love to see the miraculous happening in our midst because we are open up enough and gotten over ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do. That's what I dream of. So here's what this message really means. Instead of being filled with selfishness, which was represented by the drunkenness concept, 
We need to be filled with God, represented by the Holy Spirit, right? That's what that verse means. And so let's get over ourselves, set ourselves aside, and be enamored and full of God. Hmm. Now we're going to talk next week about what it looks like when the Holy Spirit fills us in and how it can practically come out in blessing one another. But that's next week. For this week, I just want to finish out with a couple thoughts. One, isn't it interesting that when Pentecost hit and the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they spilled out in the streets and began to talk in other languages, do you remember what they were accused of? Maybe you remember this. They were accused of being drunk. Once again, Holy Spirit and alcohol connection. Why? Because you would assume that if the Holy Spirit just empowered them to speak in other languages, super organized, you would have said the challenge would be, hey, how did you guys go to school so fast and learn all those languages? But that's not the challenge. The challenge was, why are you drunk? Because something had taken over them and they were no longer in charge. Something else was in charge. And praise the Lord, that something was someone, the very Holy Spirit of God himself was in their midst. All right, let's finish out with this. Paul used to pray a prayer over his churches, and it was the most beautiful prayer, and really in the end, it was just to pray that they'd be filled up with God. I'm gonna read that to you, and then I'm going to pray that each and every one of us as much as are willing to open up to the Lord, would be filled with the Holy Spirit right now. Let me read this. I love this beautiful prayer that Paul prays. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We studied it earlier in the series. He said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, meaning I pray, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, here's the key, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a cool prayer, yeah? So here's what we're gonna do. What I want you to do is just be in a receiving posture. Right now, I think that what we physically do tends to impact our emotions and our spirits. So maybe you wanna just get into a posture of receiving, right? Having your hands out. And I'm just gonna pray that whatever room we create, the Holy Spirit would come in and fill us with his presence and fill us with his anointing. You ready for that? All right, whatever it is, maybe you close your eyes and just pray along with me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in this moment where it just seems anointed, in this special time where we suddenly crave more of you, where you have called out to us and you have whispered our name, and we have become quite aware, Lord, that we have been so full of ourselves and full of garbage 
that, Lord, we don't want that anymore. And so we confess our garbage, our selfishness. We confess our sin to you. For your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, we want all the yuck gone, all the self gone, and whatever room we've made, we ask Holy Spirit that you would fill us up from the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom. That Holy Spirit, we want more of you. And even though we want your power and your anointing and your authority and all the beautiful things you bring, to be honest, we just want you. If you came with no treats, if you came with no presents, just having you. So Holy Spirit, for all of us that have emptied room for you, would you fill us up right now with a powerful anointing of your presence that we might be different, consumed by you, overtaken by you, God, controlled by you, Lord, able to operate with you in the supernatural. And we pray all of these things in the mighty, precious, and powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen.